So in the monastic tradition we pay homage to the Buddha at the beginning of a talk, so I'd just like to begin with that. Namotasa Bhagavato Arahato Sama Sambuddhasa Namotasa Bhagavato Arahato Sama Sambuddhasa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa Bhuttang tamang sankhang namasami So this is uh, my first time here at this group. So it's not my first time in the monastery, but my first time coming to this group. And just want to thank you all for your welcome. And uh, it is very lovely to see this room filled with people. I, actually, when I was first sitting here, I thought, oh, you know, most of these people will probably really have a very long practice because I know that James's group has been going for a very long time. And then I realized there's a lot of people here who are here for the first time. So there's probably quite a mixture of folks, like very, very seasoned and maybe more just uh, dipping in and, or beginnings. So it's lovely to have that, uh, that, that mix. And like I said, it's very inspiring to see so many people interested in the practice who are, you know, well, at, at this time in the world, I think it's very important that there is a, a real deep interest in the practice and in the Buddha's path. Because we're, we're in quite uh, turbulent times now. They say there's a, a Chinese curse, may you, may you be born in interesting times. <laughs> so we're certainly living in interesting times. And whether it's a curse or a blessing kind of depends on what we do with it. Depends on how we meet it. So I was thinking about, you know, in the practice, when we first start to practice, you know, we, we begin by learning to train the mind a little bit, settle the mind, focus the mind. And in doing that, we see how it's pulled here and there, the, uh, the tendencies, the particular tendencies we have. Maybe we, we have a lot of um, sensual desire, and we're always pulled out into beautiful things, delicious things. Or we might have a lot of ill will and we always see what's wrong with the situation or what's wrong with a person or what's wrong with what's being said. Or uh, we may be delusional, get confused easily. Or uh, we get uh, spun out into wonderful dreams that can't quite get realized. So uh, when, we, when we start to practice meditation, we get to know these different tendencies of our own mind. And we've all got different you know, leanings and different kind of ways those, those manifest. But just to, to get to know the, the parts that, or the, the, the volition of the mind that, is, that pulls us around before we get a handle on it. We're just, we're just following those, those uh, forces. So as we continue the practice, we start to see, oh, you know, look, you know, I want to sit for 30 minutes and my mind is, is being pulled into wanting to do some really nice thing somewhere else. I don't want to be here. Or it's lost in a sense of aversion because my seat isn't comfortable enough, my body hurts, it's really irritating, or it's, it's too noisy, that crow outside is distracting me. You know, so we, we get lost in these uh, mind states. But as we, as we practice meditation we start to see those mind states and then the more that we see them then the more of a handle we have we have a choice we don't have to be driven by them anymore even though we get caught you know we get we we forget and we get caught up and then we have to remind ourselves again that's all very much part of the practice part of the training is to is to come back and start again and uh, remind ourselves of our of our potential so, you know, that I always like to reflect on the fact that the Buddha was a human being. He was born from his mother's womb. 
and he you know, was nursed at his mother's breast and then at his aunt's breast when his mother died. And he was raised with food and, and exercise and education. And he grew, you know, to be a man. And then he went on his spiritual quest. And he went to quite extremes on his spiritual quest before his enlightenment. But he's a human being as, as we are. So what he discovered, the awakened mind that he discovered, is not uh, unique to the Buddha. The, the way of finding it, let's say, was unique to the Buddha. But the awakenness itself is, is um, it's like our, you could say it's our birthright, it's our inherent nature. So we can easily forget that. We get caught up in the personality, the stories, the scenarios of our lives and, and then maybe we come and practice and we're just trying to get a little bit more peaceful or a little bit less angry or a little bit clearer and that's good it's good to do that but not to forget that the actual legacy of the Buddha is much greater than that it is a path of awakening and we all have the potential to fully awaken and we find that moment by moment through, through training our minds. So as I've, I've witnessed the, the process of this practice, you know, we, we start often, I'll say we, or it might be different for you, but I, often we, we begin with a lot of confusion, a lot of chaos of mind, you know, a lot of it's maybe strong emotions. And then we start to meditate, start to train the mind. And maybe we can even have some quite good concentration. So we can drop away from the, the turbulence of mind into some very pleasant states. And then we come out of those pleasant states and, oh, there's the world again, challenging me, irritating me, provoking me. You know. So the, the, you know, the practice is, is balancing. We have to have enough collectedness of mind that we're not just getting, just wandering, you know, the mind isn't just wandering here and there. And, uh, but we also need the continuity. So not only to sit in meditation, have a nice experience, and then not worry too much about what you're doing the rest of the time, but to use the practice in a continuous way. So uh, it might be that, that the meditation, particular sitting is not very focused, a little bit distracted. Um, the mind is, uh, is agitated. And then we might think, oh, I didn't have a good sit. And then another time we sit and, then, and we go into a state of bliss and the body feels really relaxed and everything falls away for a while. Oh, I had a really good sit, that was really good. So it's like, this is actually, I had a pleasant sit and I had an unpleasant sit, that, that's true. But a good sit and a, a not good sit, that, that maybe is not so true. So what makes a meditation really valuable is the awareness that we bring to it. So if we sit for 40 minutes and we're sitting with a lot of, let's say, agitation or anxiety, then if the awareness is really present, there's knowing. This is the state of the mind. The mind is agitated. It's restless. It's anxious. And then we can bring a sense of well-wishing towards ourselves. We can use the breath to help calm. And it may or may not subside. The anxiety or the agitation may or may not subside. But the important thing is that we're staying present with what's going on. We're keeping the awareness with what's going on. So awareness itself, it doesn't have a preference whether what, is it, what it's aware of is pleasant or painful, dull or interesting. The awareness is embracing all of it. It is fully present with all of it. And this is the, the practice that we need to cultivate, the, the practice of strengthening awareness. So I'm very aware that um, you know, at this time we have this interesting situation, this challenging situation, 
where we, 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 we take on the practice and it's about calming and clar- getting more clarity and um, um, living in a more skillful way. And then what can arise is a sense of, we might have like a peaceful meditation, but there's a certain sense of kind of tension or anxiety. I think it's a very, very common problem, a common phenomena now at this time is uh, people live with a lot of anxiety or depression. And when I look at the situation of the world that we're in at this time, I think, well, that's very healthy. That's very appropriate. Because it's pretty anxiety-provoking what we're in the midst of. And for a long time, there's been a kind of a denial of what's going on. And I was very encouraged to hear our President Obama actually kind of, you know, say climate, the climate change is a reality. We don't have time for meeting with the Flat Earth Society. <laughs> you know, <laughs> this is the truth. You know, it is, it is, we are in a, in a very challenging situation. And I think one of the, the difficulties is if we let it in, it's so overwhelming that we, we feel that we're just going to fall apart and we don't know what to do. So we'd rather just not really let it in. Let's just keep working with this heart here. And may all beings be well. And, you know, try not to uh, use up too much, uh, try not to do too much flying and use ecological washing up liquid and everything will be all right. And, it's, and it helps, you know, it's good that, that we do those things, but, it, but it's not, uh, you know, there, there is more than that. So um, the other week I was just sitting with this, this feeling of the, the kind of um, the tremors and the, and the overwhelm and the anxiety that, that arises in the heart when you really take in the situation that we're in as a planet. And uh, the sense of, you know, a few generations like my gran- in my grandmother's time, it was normal to assume that, you know, you'd have, probably have children and they could have children and they could have children and on it would go if you were that way inclined to have children. And now it's a little bit different. You know, you have children and you wonder what they're going to be growing up into. What are they going to have to deal with, you know? our children or our grandchildren, what are they going to have to meet in this world? And are they going to be able to survive even? So it's a very, very different situation than we've ever known as a species before. Even we might have known it in pockets, but not, not, a, not in a global level as we have now. And, uh, you know, this is not a small thing. So to, to, to take this in is, is scary, and it is overwhelming. So if we take in the whole picture, you know, if we take in, also if we take in too much scientific information about that, about all of it, we can just become overwhelmed and kind of catatonic because it's all just too much. But I think it's very important to to not turn away from this situation because if we're if we're in our little bubble doing our practice, and there's this bigger picture going on that we don't really want to take in but we know it's there you know we're setting up a lot of stress for ourselves and we can't really it isn't really a path of awakening as long as we're keeping so much out it isn't really fully a path of awakening so as I was sitting with this feeling I just uh, we we we've been speaking in in our little community, and I know there's this kind of very very strong feeling of uh, oh my goodness, you know, whew, this is uh, intense. And then uh, we we went into meditation. We had a particular we had particular times of the day that we meditate, and and I was just sitting with this um, turbulent heart, and I was just look, looking at this this turbulent heart, and I could see well. This isn't going to help anything, actually. Being in this state isn't going to actually... I can't make a wise decision from this place. I can't make a skillful action from this place. It, it, it makes me stressed out, you know. 
So I was just sitting in meditation and immediately what came to mind was the qualities of loving kindness, soothing the heart with metta. May I be well, may I be free from all suffering, may all beings be well, may all beings be free from all suffering and really connecting fully with that intention. And as I did that, the heart started to calm down and be soothed. But you don't want to stop there. So from that, there was like a natural progression. It was like the the metta, the loving kindness, provided the support to then move into compassion. And compassion means opening to the suffering, opening to the suffering of others, of oneself, being present with, allowing the heart to open to the suffering. So because there was the support of metta, the heart was calmed. It could open to the suffering. It wasn't thrown around by. There was a certain basis, a foundation on which that could be felt. And then just letting the heart feel that painful feeling. Feel with the the anger of of the 11-year-old that I'd spoken to recently who was talking to me about about environmental issues and and the anger that she felt at at being a little girl growing up in in this situation. Taking in the anger of this girl. Taking in the fear of, uh, of a grandparent. Taking in the anxiety of uh, probably all of us, you know, who are, who are in this, you know, we're, we're kind of mesmerized into this way of living. It's difficult to get out of it. We're all part of it. There's no finger to point, actually. We're all part of it. And just, just taking that in and feeling it and like, yes, you know, this is part of what is going on. And the body is here. There's a certain foundation and this is going on. And then I moved just naturally to mudita. And at first I wasn't sure what, what do I feel a sense of joy, you know, in the midst of all of this kind of rather tragic situation. Where is the joy in that? And then I thought of the, the sound of the wind in the trees and the, the creatures that are living on this planet Earth and just the, the movement of, a, of the river water and of, of, you know, human beings with their dreams and intentions and their, their love of their dear ones. And, you know, animals and birds, they, they do the same. They also care for and love their family, their young and so on. So just that, you know, thinking of this and, and of the beauty of this planet. It's like a jewel. And you look at it from a distance. It's beautiful blue, green, white planet. It's beautiful. So then just feeling this sense of mudita for the beauty of this planet, for the love that is here in this sentient realm. And then that brings a sense of uplift, of, uh, of joy. And, uh, and then there's upeka, equanimity. And this is a very, very important factor. It's kind of, a, I think of equanimity as a very high form of love, a very kind of pure form of love. So equanimity is, is, uh, is looking from a, a distance or from, a, from, a, from a, a broad perspective, not from a distance as in distancing oneself from what's going on, but uh, just like the pelicans, you know, when they fly high, slowly, You've got all, everything else going on, that, you know, the other birds flapping away and the people running around on the beach. I live near Ocean Beach, so I watch them. And then you've got the pelicans that have been around since the dinosaurs. They're just kind of cruising along, doing their thing. And then you come down to the water, they skim along the side the, the, above the water and then they come up again. They're just kind of peacefully cruising along, doing their thing. And I always feel like they're like this, the, the manifest symbol of upeka, of equanimity. And, you know, when you can, I was thinking, like, they've been around a long time, these birds. They've survived a long time. And that quality of kind of getting a, a, a bigger perspective, being a little bit slowed down, not being caught in the rush of things, that's got uh, 
endurance, that's got lasting value to it. So uh, the, the Sanskrit translation of, of, of upeka, equanimity, literally means having a broad view. So, um, you know, when we look with the, with the mind of a mouse at our situation, it's, it's really, really scary. We don't even want to go out the front door. We don't want to do anything. We don't want to use anything. It's all just too much, you know, because we're just up here. We're, we're um, it's it's so close. We're looking at it so closely that we that we uh, you know we, we just get overwhelmed. And if we look uh, with the view of the pelican or with with the view of a, a broad view, then we see the changing nature of things. So we can look like zoom out into the cosmos and look at planet Earth, this little beautiful planet Earth in this galaxy, in this solar system, in this galaxy. And now they say that there are maybe two or three billion galaxies in the universe, kind of amazing, mind-boggling, inconceivable. So then it's like, oh, you know, this is the context within which we're living. It's kind of vast, and then when we look uh, in a very min- in a not in, in, not in a mousey kind of way, but in a in a very minute way, like under a microscope, you could say, then we see the the constant changing nature of things. Everything is in a state of flux all the time. What I call me is in a state of flux all the time. It doesn't ever arrive anywhere. It's constantly changing. Everything is doing that all the time. Berkeley Buddhist Monastery. It has arisen at this time. It is in a process of Berkeley Buddhist Monastery-ing. And uh, at some point it will be something else. It will decay. Or it is decaying, actually. It decay and it will maybe crumble and maybe, maybe parts of it will be used for something else. Or maybe a forest will grow here one day. Who knows? So this is, this is what's going on all the time. Constantly, so everything is in a state of flux. So there is no, there is no. Um, it's not like we we can fix things or get get to a point where it's all going to be safe and and nice and okay. Life isn't like that. So you might ask, well, you know, if that's the case, then why worry about anything? Why bother? Why even mind that? You know. Maybe our grandchildren won't have a place to live because it's all changing. What's the problem? So, you know, this is like the ultimate view and then there's the the conventional view and the the Buddha brought the two together, the ultimate and the conventional, like two palms of the hand. And also you could say the ultimate view is like the wisdom view, cutting through, seeing the, the, um, the true nature of things, empty, changing, constantly changing. And then the compassionate view is seeing the sentience. You know, here we are, sentient beings. We can pretend that we're empty, but we're, we're sentient. We're, we're, we're both, actually. We're sentient beings. So we feel, we, we, we're influenced by, we pick up, we, we respond. And not just human beings, but every living being on this planet so compassion meets the sentience, meets the, the ten, it, meets, it meets life with tenderness. So uh, there's a, a story in the suttas which you may be familiar about, of, of, about uh, the Buddha, as he's wandering, he, he comes to a group of monks and most of them are sitting in meditation practicing and then there's this one monk who's uh, inside and he's lying in his own dysentery. He's lying in his own excrement. He's alive, you know, he's living, but he's very sick. And uh, so the Buddha asked the monks, you know, why is this monk lying here in his own excrement? And they say, oh, you know, he's had dysentery for ages. He's sick, he can't do anything. He's, 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 no, he's, no, he's no use. So we just leave him there and we just get on with our practice. And so the Buddhist, Buddha asked, he's with Ananda, his, his uh, attendant, and his, so he asked Ananda, please get me some water and a cloth. 
So Ananda gets him some water and a cloth and he bathes this monk. He takes off his robes, he bathes his body, cleans him of excrement, of dysentery, kind of filthy, stinking stuff. He bathes him, gives him fresh sheets, makes sure he's comfortable. And then he says to the monks, you must take care of your fellow monks. I mean, he uses the example that now we don't have family because we go forth from home to homelessness. So he's saying, now you don't have family. Well, you maybe have family. So you have to take, we have to take care of each other. You can't just leave people like that. You have to take care. Nobody else is going to come and do it. You, you have to do it. So the Buddha knew very, very deeply, as deeply as it gets, that everything is, that is in a state of flux, that, everything that, that all that is born must die, everyone that is born must die, everything that, that comes into form even must, must break up. The Buddha knew that more deeply than anybody else in the world. And yet he responded to that sick monk in the way of, you have to take care. You know, he wasn't afraid to get his hands dirty. You have to take care. So this is kind of how it is. We're in this, uh, we're, here we are on this planet Earth, which is maybe in a, a little bit in the state of that monk. There's uh, a lot of pollution. There's a lot of... Uh, There's a lot, also a lot of, 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 of um, you know, taking. There's a lot of, there's a lot of, uh, like, uh, resources are being used up. And, uh, and there's a culture of, of, of taking and throwing away. I mean, I, I watch it all every day. I see people buying drinks that last for maybe five, ten minutes in plastic, bottle, no, plastic cups which last for thousands of years. They have their drink, Throw it in the bin. Don't even manage to get it into the recycling. You know, this is the culture that we live in. It's it's asleep to the realities of of change and of impermanence. So, uh, so we're in this situation where it could be in our lifetimes, quite possible in our lifetime, that we meet with very extreme change. And uh, if we pretend it's not going to happen, it's not going to help. If we get overwhelmed and frightened and, and uh, freaked out, it's not going to help. So we need to learn how to open with awareness, open to the way things are. Open to the sentient reality, the reality of our vulnerability, of our mortality and open to also the ultimate reality that it's all on an ultimate level everything's okay everything's in fact perfect doing its thing and we were never going to survive anyway (laughs) we were born we go through our life we're going to die that's how it goes but uh, meanwhile we take care the best care we can out of, out of love, out of compassion, out of understanding our sentience. So I really hope that you will uh, you know, not just hear this talk and then go home and say, oh yeah, I heard a talk by a nun, but, uh, but actually take it in, you know, and into your lives and see what can I do in my life, even if you're already doing a lot. What can I do in my life that brings this a little bit more deeply, a, bit, a little bit more clearly, where I can, I can live from a place of increased integrity? You know, we're, we're all, like I say, we're all part of this. Nobody's got clean hands here, you know. <laughs> we're all part of it because we've, we've grown up in a culture that's, that didn't actually know. And now we're starting to wake up to the effects, you know, the, the, the effects of our actions, cause and effect. And now, and when, once you know, then that's a whole different thing. Then we have a certain responsibility to, uh, to meet this situation. And we all have different strengths, different qualities, different abilities, different connections, you know. So we'll all do what we do in different ways. But I just really... Um, 
ask you, uh, implore you, and hope that you will really take this in and, and not just put it on the shelf because it's too uncomfortable or because you don't quite know how to do it, how to meet it. But let the discomfort come in. It's not going to kill you. Let the discomfort come in. Don't, don't get overwhelmed. Stay in your body. Keep breathing. But let the discomfort come in. And then use the tools that the Buddha gave, the Brahma Viharas, those four beautiful tools of the heart to guide your heart in the right direction and strengthen your heart and mind. So it's, it's all Dhamma. None of it is other than Dhamma. And it's how we meet it that is important. So you may be familiar with the, with the, on the Eightfold Path, the, the Buddha speaks in terms of, of right intention. He speaks about thoughts or intentions of renunciation, of non-harm and non-ill will. So, uh, you know, non-harm can be like you know, wishing for the well-being of others, not wanting to, it's compassionary, not wanting to see others experience harm. Loving kindness, compassion, and non-ill will. So getting angry at the, at the, the big powers it might, it's okay if it gets you motivated to do something, but it's not a place to stay. It's not to just remain angry. That doesn't help. So to, to use the, the energy that this brings up, in a, guide it in the right direction. Don't just get caught in aversion, anger, resentment. It's not going to help. And then the intentions of renunciation, just looking in your life, you know, in what ways... Can I give up a little more? Because if we all give up a bit of comfort now, <clears throat> we can save a lot of discomfort in the future, whether it's for ourselves or for others. So just to see, you know, I mean, I'm a nun, you know, so I, I give up things that you might take for granted, but I still enjoy comfort. I like nice things, you know. I'm not beyond sense pleasure. So, but still, you know, to bring that that thought when you're going to go and buy something. Do I need it? How would it be if I didn't have it? Maybe, what if I, for the money I'm going to spend on this big drink, I just have some water and then I give that to some other, more useful uh, cause or whatever. So just to, just to bring in those thoughts of renunciation, intentions of renunciation. And renunciation, the, the, the true renunciation, it's not giving up, you know, to be pious and, you know, be really holy, but it's about giving up what is good in order to receive what is much better. That's actually how it works. Otherwise, nobody would be doing it. I wouldn't have been doing this for 20-something years if it wasn't like that. <laughs> you give up what is good, what gives you some happiness, in order to open to what is, is much, much better greater than that. So, uh, so I offer these words for your encouragement and reflection. And we have uh, about maybe 10 minutes if anyone would like to ask questions about anything I've said or uh, share anything in particular on this theme. Oh yes, there's a microphone. Thank oh, you. <laughs> Sorry, the other people at the back won't hear you. So, all right. Well, I want to say thank you very much for the talk because I live with this um, discomfort that you're talking about um, reg- all the time, and I have been. Uh, I actually was really serious back in December. I had a lot of anxiety, just an extreme amount of anxiety. And, uh, but I have a meditation practice and a yoga practice that I do on a really regular basis. And, uh, you know, now I, I feel like it's been about six months or over six months, and I, 
I wasn't so in the grip of it and really trying, like feeling like I might, you know, kind of drown in it and uh, just keeping my head above water. And so with my practice and with feeling, uh, using my mind and and my feelings and uh, just have been able to get to a place where I feel like that grip is loosening somewhat, but it is still very challenging to face the situation that we're in. Mm-hmm. So thank, thank you. you. Thank you. Mm. Could you elaborate more about the sunflowers purifying thing? Well, I can only say I don't know a lot, but as far as I know, when you plant sunflower seeds in the ground or little seedlings in the ground, if the ground is toxic, I mean, I, I don't actually know which toxic. So there obviously some things will kill sunflowers, but um, if the ground is has uh, toxicity in it, then the plant transforms that. So the sunflowers, they'll they'll um, take in the nutrients from the earth, and they I'm not sure what they put back, but they somehow transform those that that toxicity and produce these beautiful flowers. I, don't, I actually don't know enough about it to give you a proper answer. There might be someone else here, but apparently there was a young man who who does know better than I do, who had the idea, you know, wouldn't it be a nice symbol if people on this walk held a sunflower to remind that uh, this is possible and then to actually plant, his idea was to plant uh, sunflower seeds there on the site, which may not happen but uh, because it's a you know, privately owned company and all that. But there will be, I think, a, a, a garden somewhere nearby where sunflowers will be planted as a symbol of that possibility for transformation. Yeah. I just wanted to say, I really appreciated how you shared the fruit of your actual practice in about this. Um, was very meaningful and very close uh, to what it is when you sit mm. with these kinds of questions. So mm. thank you. Thank for you. Can you elaborate a little bit more about your uh, monastery that you're trying to set up? Mm-hmm. Yes. So at the moment, we, as I say, we live in a little house uh, on the Sunset District near the ocean. And uh, we came to San Francisco. The idea was this was like a, a little transition time. We thought maybe a year, maximum two years, and then we would move to the country. So we've been there for three and a half years now. And it has been a, a wonderful place. It's, it's a lovely place. And I do encourage you to come and have a look for yourselves. But we are actually forest nuns by, by practice. So forest nuns meaning... Naturally, we would live in the in nature, and that is uh, so nature being like a support for the practice in terms of quietude, and also when you live in nature and observe nature, it is teaching the Dharma all the time. There's, the teaching is going on all the time, and there's something about being in a city, even though we're right on the edge of it, we're on the kind of quiet edge of it. You know, it's, it's, it's mind-made. It's constructed from people's thoughts and intentions. And nature is kind of from the mind of nature rather than, rather than the mind of nature through the human being. So, uh, you know, when you're, and I, I was just recently um, co-teaching a retreat in, in, a, in the wilderness. And while I was there, it, it was so clear this the process, the ever never change, ever changing process of of nature was just so clear, and the that that shift that I was talking about between the the emptiness that everything is it's kind of empty in a set of flux, and the sentience because all of these swallows were were having chicks and the little chicks were flying and we were watching and they were kind of like oh look they got their first flight and so there was the, so there was the sentience the kind of marvel of, of the of the you know, the way they would they would sort of snuggle up together and the, and the, the the way the mother and the father would take care of them, the whole kind of process of that sentient aspect and then the, the, the recognizing this is a constant changing process 
It never arrives anywhere. It's changing all the time. So, and then coming back, and, and we were um, teaching this retreat just a few hundred yards from the, from the ocean. So we out in the wilderness on, on the big flat in the Lost Coast. And then I came back to San Francisco, to our little monastery, which is almost exactly the same distance from the ocean as we were there. And yet it's, you know, we're in a house, there's cars, there's music going on around, there's, you know, people, there's all this stuff going on. There's a computer, there's a telephone. And, uh, so it's a very different scene. So by, by our practice, we're forest nuns and we, we naturally live in a rural environment. But because we've come over here as kind of foreigners, really, to, to, to start a, a monastery, we wanted to be in a central place where we could get to know people, make contacts. And so we've been there for three and a half years, and uh, we're now actively looking to move into a rural environment. And we're still, during this month, we're, we're looking at different, three different areas. So... We just actually today I came back from Sonora. We're also going to look out um, in the kind of Placerville, Sutter Creek area, and we're also looking in uh, Sonoma County. So those are the three areas that we've been looking. Yes. Uh, and I just uh, just to carry on a little bit. That one of the reasons that we want to move from where we are is not because it's not a nice place, but because. We're a community of three nuns, and we have one lay steward. And we have, request, we have requests from women who are interested to live as nuns, who would like to try out the life. We don't really have anywhere to put them. So we're looking for a place we have where we, it's of a similar price, but with more rooms and, and a bit of land, so that that flow can start to happen. Uh, could you say a few words about uh, how Ajahn Amaro is doing? Um, I was so disappointed when he left here and went back to England, and I probably sent him at least 75 articles because I thought he was bored up there in the, the sticks. He's got a bit of work And uh And uh, I just, you know, just wonder how he's doing. And, mm-hmm. Yeah. I haven't had a lot of contact with him, actually, so I can't tell you how he's doing right now. But as far as I know, he's just come back from a pilgrimage in Mount Kailash. He went on pilgrimage in Mount Kailash. He's just back very recently. And he did come to see us, um, when was that? In October last year. And he was doing very well, very well indeed. He's, it's a, it's a, the Amravati Buddhist Monastery is a, it's a complex place. It's a big place. There's a lot of people coming through. There's a lot of people living there. And it's pretty complex. And he's, done, he's doing a great job in, in pulling it all together and getting some cohesion there. I think he's far from bored. He seems to really be very happy and in, in like enjoying the challenge of it all. Yeah. So speaking of uh, Achanamaro and Amaravati, is there any change in the status of women? Because my understanding is one of the things he's going to be doing was making some change around that. Has anything happened that you know of? Or? Well, uh, I know that's a big subject. It's a big subject. And I, th- I should just make it clear that you know I trained in that community and I was part of that community for 18 years. But since I've been in America, we actually left that community in order to take full ordination. So I'm no longer officially part of our little, com- our little monastery is no longer officially part of that lineage because we decided to take full ordination, which is not possible in that lineage. So um, I think, you know, around the time that we were leaving, not, it wasn't the cause of our leaving, but it just happened to coincide, there was a lot of difficulties between the monks and the nuns, and the nuns' position was uh, pretty difficult. It was, it was not good, which is why, you know, I ended up leaving the lineage, and quite a number of people left that community of, of nuns, and a, a small number of monks also, because of the, the uh, real difficulties in the... In the gender discrimination and so far as I know it's on a day to day level it's much better for the nuns now in terms of it's not so challenging as it was during those last couple of years but no, there are no actual changes made in terms of you know, the status of nuns and so on, it's the same yeah. but it's not uh, you know, you, you don't get your nose rubbed in it every day let's say 
just got a couple of minutes don't ask me a big question <laughs> no can you can you talk about your process of transitioning from being a civilian to being a nun oh <laughs> it's kind of a big question I'll, I'll try and tell you really short I, I came across I, I, I kind of went through um, I had a, quite an insight when I was about 13 into death uh, where I just realized that we're all going to die at some point and that the whole this whole process that we're in whatever we do is going to lead, end in death. And that was kind of a bit of a wake-up call. And uh, it was quite a difficult thing to take on at that age because, you know, you're supposed to be you know, preparing for the future and, you know, it's all about preparing for the future and becoming somebody. And it was like, oh, and then we're going to die. So what is it all about? So I had that when I was uh, 13. And then, fortunately, and then I got very depressed from that and probably a few other things too. And, uh, and then when I was 14, I came up by my good fortune, I came across the Four Noble Truths, uh, the kind of heart of the Buddha's teaching in a book. And that really kind of changed my life because that was a sense of uh, the way out of suffering. You don't have to wait until you die, but you can find it here and now somehow. So when I read that, I, I would say from that day on, I had faith that the Buddha knows the way out of suffering. And I, I didn't really understand how to find it, but I just trusted it. Over time, I would, I would start to understand it. And then when I was 20, I met someone who had just come back from Thailand and had stayed with monks there. And I didn't know that there were monastics alive at this time, so I thought they had died out centuries ago. So when I heard that, I remember saying, within about five minutes, I said, that's what I want to do. I want to be a Buddhist nun. Sometime later on after I've enjoyed myself a bit more. <laughs> and, uh, and I did have a little bit of time enjoying myself, but I must say it was, uh, it was shorter than I planned. I had thought I'd kind of ordained in my 30s. I was imagining like 36 was my ideal age. But um, the, the calling was very, very strong. So when I was 22, I first visited a monastery, and I, and I had uh, just a feeling of, of coming home. And, uh, and then I was a bit frightened because I felt like I was much too young. So I managed to kind of stave it off for a couple of years. And then when I was 24, I, I went to live in the monastery for a year, kind of knowing that it would be one-way ticket. But I said, I, I left my partner. I had a, a, very, a partner who I loved very much. So I left my partner to, to live in the monastery. And I said, I kind of said, well, I think it's kind of a one-way ticket. And he was like, oh, yeah, in a year, you'll be out, you know. And, and because um, he'd also spent time in the monastery himself, and he knew how challenging it could be, so uh, so then I I came to the monastery. I actually had quite a difficult year, and uh, but at the, the end of that year, it was clear that I needed to carry on, and then it just kind of unfolded from there, really. So uh, it was a calling, and, and in some ways, I would say it wasn't my choice. <laughs> and sometimes people ask why that particular lineage, why that tradition. It was a call. It just, it just, it just fitted together. It was maybe karmic. I don't know what you could say, but uh, and I can say I'm very grateful. That I had the opportunity. I, I, I have a lot of joy in my life, and I really love to live as a nun. And uh, I'm very grateful also to have been received here so well that we have been received so well in this country. So it's uh, it's not an easy path because we're kind of having to, you know, reclaim the path in a way, the nuns community. But uh, it's worthwhile. Yeah. Okay. So, do you do you have a closing? Do you do a sharing of merit at the end or something? And uh, do you have? Because we have a chant that we do, but you won't know that chant probably. So, how do you normally do it? I think they know the sharing. Do you? Okay. Well, so we chant the sharing of blessings in English. And if you don't know, just, just align your heart with the intention. So this is just really bringing to mind the, the goodness of your practice, the, 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 the effort it takes to, to continue in this practice, the, the fruits that you've gained through the practice, and that you share those generously with, and liberally with all beings. Now let us chant the verses of sharing and aspiration. 
Through the goodness that arises from my practice, may my spiritual teachers and guides of great virtue, my mother, my father and my relatives, the sun and the moon, and all virtuous leaders of the world. May the highest devas and evil forces, celestial beings, guardian spirits of the earth, and the Lord of death, may those who are friendly, indifferent or hostile, May all beings receive the blessings of my life. May they soon attain the threefold bliss and realize the deathless. Through the goodness that arises from my practice and through this act of sharing, May all desires and attachments quickly cease and all harmful states of mind until I realize Nibbana in every kind of birth. May I have an upright mind with mindfulness and wisdom, austerity and vigor, May the forces of delusion not take hold, nor weaken my resolve. The Buddha is my excellent refuge. Unsurpassed is the protection of the Dhamma. The solitary Buddha is my noble guide. The Sangha is my supreme support. Through the supreme power of all these, may darkness and delusion be dispelled. So maybe see you next week. I'll be back next week. All being well. <laughs>